James chapter 1 as we make our way uh, through uh, this letter, perhaps the earliest of the New Testament letters written by James, most likely the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd like to read to us today verses 9 through 12. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth. That you would grant to us faith and knowledge and understanding to be able to embrace all of the promises of the gospel as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, a common objection brought against James by modern commentators is that he is so random. That is, he goes from one subject matter to the next without much logical consistency or transitions. And it's uh, often difficult for us to try to make sense of what James is saying or what he ultimately is getting at. A good example is what we've seen thus far in chapter 1. For those of you who have been with us for the past few weeks, you'll notice that you'll remember that James began his letter by talking about trials and how God uses trials to work in our life. And then he talks about wisdom, only then in our passage today to talk about the rich and the poor. And then he goes back to the topic of trials. Seems like he's jumping around and there's not much logical consistency Uh, between his thoughts. Well, while there might be some truth to that, James does handle a lot of different topics in short order. One thing we want to be careful that we're not doing is imposing upon an ancient writer our modern writing techniques. What we prefer or how we've been taught to write isn't necessarily the only way to write. And it's true that people in the ancient world just wrote differently than we do today. And it's not necessarily any better or any worse. I think there's a lot that we miss when we read the scriptures because we're not used to their style of writing. And so it is our challenge today to try to make sense of these ancient writings, to see the logical order, the logical logical consistency that I think the original audience would have gotten right away. But perhaps even more pressing when I read to you our passage, then rather than just the whether James has logical consistency, perhaps more concerning for us today is the fact that James, in our passage, actually commends the notion of boasting. Let the poor man, the lowly brother, boast in his exaltation. Perhaps when I read that for you, you, you began to think, well, wait a minute, aren't we as Christians not supposed to boast? Isn't boasting excluded in the Christian life? This idea of being self-confident and bragging? 
Well, certainly, that type of boasting is forbidden. As James says in chapter 4, when you boast in your arrogance, he says all such boasting, that type of boasting, is evil. But not all boasting is bad. It depends on what you are boasting about. And I think Paul confirms this in his writings. He uses this same word that, that James uses in our passage today, translated boasting. He uses this word many, many times. And Paul does confirm for us that he, when he says that boasting in one's own self-righteousness is flat out excluded in the Christian life by the law of faith. The fact that we are justified by faith alone means that there can be no boasting for our own self-righteousness. We see that in Romans chapter 3. We were reminded of that also in Ephesians 2 when he says it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And he also goes on in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to say that no human being can boast in the, in the presence of God because, no one, uh, because, again, our salvation is not a result of works. But then Paul turns around and he uses that same word and he says that we actually do boast in the Christian life when we boast or rejoice, as it's translated, in hope of the glory of God in Romans chapter 5. Not only that, Paul says... But we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Elsewhere, Paul says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses because God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. And quoting from the prophet Jeremiah, he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Elsewhere, Paul also speaks of his labors in the gospel and the, the particular churches he planted and the people that he saw come to faith. And he speaks of them as the thing he boasts about or takes the most amount of pride in, in a good sense, taking pride as, as their spiritual father. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? And so boasting, not all boasting, is bad, depending on what you are boasting in. If you're boasting in your own self-righteousness, in your own arrogance and confidence, that's bad. But if you're boasting in the Lord or the works that God has done in you, then that is good. And so ultimately, the question is, isn't whether we will boast, but what we will boast about. Boasting is inevitable. It's ultimately part of our nature. It's who we are as human beings created in the image of God. When I was raised, the, what, what, what this was typically called was self-esteem. And you were told that you ought to have a healthy, healthy self-esteem, not being self-loathing or beating yourself up or having a poor image of yourself. And today, I think rather than calling it self-esteem, it's more often called your identity. You see, we as human beings made in the image of God have an identity. The question is, what are we basing our identity on? How do we view ourselves? What gives us a sense of self-worth? What sets us apart from other people and then motivates our interactions with them? The answers to those questions are the type of things that we boast about. 
Now, in the world today, we are told that what we should boast about, what should give us our most core identity, are things like our sexual orientation or our gender identity or even the color of our skin. That's what we're told should identify us. Those are the type of things we ought to boast about according to the world today. But ultimately, all of those things is a form of idolatry because it's taking a lesser distinction, like the color of your skin, whether it's taking these lesser distinctions, whether good, bad, or indifferent, and making them of ultimate importance. Anytime you take something of minor importance and make it of ultimate importance, you have made it an idol. And ultimately, sadly, that is what the world is pressing upon us today. And all of this, whether you make your sexual orientation your primary identity or the color of your skin your primary identity or your gender or whatever it is, if you make that your primary identity, it ultimately will lead to bondage and condemnation. Because all such identity markers come from who we are in Adam. If you see yourself as in Adam, you are seeing yourself as condemned, corrupted, and guilty. And it ultimately leads to futility and bondage. But you see, the good news of the gospel is that we are given a new identity in Christ, where all of those other distinctions that we find in the world today, whether it's male or female, black or white, slave or free, any of these distinctions that we see in the world, when we are in Christ, our new identity redefines and reorientates those other identities. As Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, And there, that is in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's not saying that when we become Christians, when we are baptized, you stop becoming a male or a female. He's not saying that you automatically are freed as a slave. He's not saying that your ethnicity or your race changes. No, what he's saying is those earthly distinctions are done away with in Christ, or at least reorientated and put underneath the primary identity we have in Christ. And so why am I talking about this? Well, because that's what I think James is getting at when he tackles yet another type of distinction that is so often given importance in the world today. And that is, our socioeconomic status. How much money you got in your bank account? That seems to be very important in the world today. Are you rich or are you poor? Are you upper class or are you low class? That's what James talks about when he talks about the lowly brother versus the rich brother. Now, keep in mind, the vast majority of James' audience, the people to whom he is writing, The vast majority of them were very poor. They were sojourners. They were exiles, kicked away, kicked out of their homeland because of persecution. And so they were facing all sorts of of odds stacked against them. And so they were, for the most part, quite poor. 
That's why in chapter 2, he can say, are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? But that being said, even though the majority of James's audience were poor, there's also evidence to suggest that some in his audience were quite wealthy. He goes on to warn them in chapter 4 as they make plans for business trips. You know, I'm going to go to this city for a year and make X amount of money. He says, you should, do, you should say that only if the Lord wills. Don't be confident in yourself. Don't be arrogant, he tells them. But you'll notice that he addresses both the lowly brother and the rich brother as brothers. Suggesting that we are all part of the family of God. And so perhaps we can add to Paul's list in Galatians chapter 3, male, female, slave, free, that there is neither rich nor poor. That is, when you walk through the doors of the church, however, however much money you have in your bank account does not matter. And that's ultimately what James is going to get at in chapter 2 when he says you should show no partiality with each other when you're meeting in church. Whether somebody's wearing very nice clothes or ragged clothes, it doesn't matter, he tells us. Why? Because we're all part of the family of God. We're all brothers. And so starting with the lowly brother, what does he say about him? Well, he says that he ought to boast in his exaltation. Now, when James is talking about his exaltation, what is he referring to? Well, clearly not an earthly type of exaltation, something like a job promotion or a pay raise that in all likelihood would not have happened for his original audience. And so clearly he's not talking about earthly types of exaltation, but clearly he's referring to the exaltation that we experience in Christ. By being united to him by faith, we are exalted together with him. James speaks of this type of exaltation in chapter 4 when he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And I think Paul describes that type of exaltation in Ephesians 2 when he says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up. There's that word, exaltation. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Even though you're sitting here today in San Marcos on a plastic chair, in another sense, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You have been exalted with him. Why? Because we're united to him by faith. Of course, there's going to come an ultimate exaltation, and we call that glorification. That will happen at the last day. As Paul speaks of this in Romans 8, he says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You'll notice there that Paul speaks in the past tense. I don't know if any of you had had a chance to look at yourself in the mirror today. But if you did, you may have noticed that you're not glorified yet. I certainly am not. So how can Paul say that we are glorified past tense? Well, he speaks that way because it's true of Jesus. And if it happened to Jesus, it most certainly will happen to us. Because we are united to him, our exalted head, the Lord of glory, as James calls him. 
our future glorification is most certain, and we participate in his present exaltation through the spirit of glory that he has given to us. This is what James is talking about when he speaks of the lowly brother's exaltation. And he goes on in chapter 2 to say, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? This is the identity that we have in Christ. We're rich in faith. We're heirs of the kingdom of God. We are united to Christ, the Lord of glory. And so even the lowly slave in the ancient world is given a new identity. And in one sense, even the slave is free because he's been made free in Christ. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant, literally a slave, is a freedman of the Lord. Because ultimately he serves the Lord and not man. He's serving the Lord as a free person because Christ Jesus has bought him. And so here we see this seemingly contradictory thing that although you may be a slave in this world, you are free to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. This uh, statement uh, by Martin Luther, I think, uh, captures it well. He says a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. Then he goes on to say, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And so a slave is a freedman. As Paul goes on to say, likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ, or likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. You don't own yourself. And so here, I think we see this new identity that we have in Christ, and in particular for people of low socioeconomic status, those people who have nothing to their name, who may be slaves in the ancient world, James says, exult, boast, identify yourself with who you are in Christ. You have one foot in heaven. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You own the universe. It will all be given to you. And so that's comforting for this lowly brother. And for the vast majority of his audience, I think that would resonate. And they could hear that. But what about that small minority of his readership who have money? The wealthy Christian who has many earthly possessions, who has many earthly reasons to boast, to wear fancy clothing, gold, jewelry, and show off his wealth. Well, James says to that man, you ought to boast in your humiliation. Now, what kind of humiliation is he talking about when he uh, you know, loses in the stock market or when he, he does something wrong and everyone looks and laughs? No, it's not earthly humiliation. But once again, he's talking about the humiliation we experience through our union with Christ, the suffering servant. Jesus Christ said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he calls us as his followers to humble ourselves in the same way that he did. And so the wealthy Christian 
is not his own. He's been bought with a price. Even though he may be free in an earthly sense, he is a servant, a humble servant of all. His new identity is to love and serve his neighbor. And by using his wealth, he can benefit not himself, but others. And this is so important, especially for those who have wealth to keep in mind, because James warns them, and using a very common illustration that would have been so common to them living in the Middle East, but also is common to us living here in Southern California. The, the climate and temperature uh, between here and, and Palestine is almost identical. And you know what it's like when you have a good rain in, in January, February, and even into March, and then it starts getting sunny, And in March and April, what do you do? You look up the hills and you see it's lush, it's green, and then the flowers come and it's so beautiful. Then what happens come summer? Scorching wind, the hot, dry air, and the sun beats down in all those fields that were white, that were green and filled with flowers are brown, scorched done away with. James says, that's ultimately what riches will do. So also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now we sing in Psalm 103 that we all, like flowers, we're here today, gone tomorrow. And James uses this, as I said, a very common biblical metaphor, but here he's speaking in particular about the riches, earthly riches. They are so fleeting When he talks about the rich man fading away, some commentators suggest that he's speaking of the judgment which will come upon them. But again, keep in mind, he's not talking to non-Christians. He'll he'll speak to non-Christian rich later, later. But here he's speaking to brothers. And he's reminding them of the fact that their, their wealth is only temporary. It is fleeting. They will not be able to take it with them. It will be here today and gone tomorrow. And so here, I think, we can appreciate some of James's logical consistency and how he connects his exhortation to both the rich and to the poor in light of the fact that, that what we are experiencing today is temporary and how he, how he connects that with his previous exhortation to pray to the Lord for wisdom. He says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Because ultimately, this idea of wisdom is tied to having an eternal perspective as opposed to an earthly one. It's part and parcel of the wisdom that God gives us from above. We're going to sing in our psalm of application, Psalm Psalm 90, where Moses says, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So Moses says, So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Number your days. Recognize that while God is eternal, what we are experiencing here is fleeting. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. And so we ought to recognize that. And that's part of wisdom, having that perception, having the ability to see things from an eternal perspective is part and parcel of that wisdom that God gives to us. 
It also keeps us from being double-minded. As James warns us against that, that, that you know, this double-minded spirituality where you, uh, one day you pray for wisdom and the next day you want the things of this world. And again, if you remember that these things are like flowers, they look pretty, but they're gone tomorrow. So it is uh, from this, well, it'll keep us from being double-minded. Well, after exhorting both the lowly Christians and the rich Christians to have their primary identity in Christ, to boast about the things that are true of them as Christians, he then, in verse 12, goes on to issue a blessing to the man who remains steadfast under trial. Now, we might expect this verse to follow verses 2 through 4, where where James originally introduced this idea of trials and how it is that we ought to count it all joy when we encounter trials of various kinds because God uses those trials to produce in us steadfastness. And after talking about that, you would think that he would then immediately, in verse 12, issue that blessing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And so again, here we might say, well, James, you're just not writing the way my English teacher taught me how to write. You need to have more logical consistency. You're jumping all around. Well, maybe let's do a little bit more thinking about this and see if somehow this idea of riches and poverty can be tied together with this idea of trials and testing of our faith. And I think, after a few seconds of thinking about it, it becomes pretty clear that not only poverty, but also riches can be a trial in the Christian life. Now, I don't think I need to convince you that poverty can be a trial. Living paycheck to paycheck, not knowing if you're going to be able to afford the next meal, right? There's, uh, studies have shown that poverty just, uh, you know, it, 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 People who are poor, they have less opportunities in life. They don't have as good health care. They don't get to live in nice neighborhoods. They have environmental impacts. There's all sorts of things that poverty produces that makes it difficult to live. So I don't think I need to convince you that poverty can be a trial. But what about riches? What about riches? Can they also be a test of our faith? a trial to endure in the Christian life? Well, yeah, absolutely. What is it about riches that make it difficult in the Christian life? Well, for one, they may keep you from being saved. As our Lord Jesus Christ teaches, after encountering the rich young ruler who had a lot of stuff, Luke told us, after he walked away sad, because he was not willing to part with his possessions to follow after the Lord, Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it will be. And his disciples, we read, were amazed at his words. Now, why would they be amazed? Well, because they were under the assumption that if you were rich, you must be doing something right. If you have wealth and power and and influence, God must love you. 
And, and riches were thought to be a sign of God's favor in your life. And so when Jesus says, no, those people, as opposed to being in God's favor, are actually outside of the kingdom of God, you can see how the original audience, their mouth just dropped to the floor. And that's why they go on to say, well, then who could be saved? If the rich aren't saved, then what about the rest of us? And so Jesus has to repeat himself. He says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And he goes on to use an illustration. It's, it's, it's like trying to fit a camel through the eye of a needle. Now, I don't have to elaborate on that illustration. Jesus is using hyperbole, clearly, to make a point. But his point being is that ultimately it's impossible for a rich man in and of himself to enter into the kingdom of God. Why? Well, because those riches weigh us down. They distract us. They, they, they make us double-minded. Jesus says, no man can serve two masters. Either he will love one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's why in, in Luke, uh, Luke 6, he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And so as David tells us in Psalm 62, Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. He said there's nothing wrong with being rich. There's nothing innately sinful with having money. But there's that temptation to set our heart on those riches. And to give ourselves an inflated sense of self-worth. And to boast in our own accomplishments. And think that we are too good for grace. That, I think, is the trial that James is referring to here. But he gives a blessing. He says, look, you people who are wealthy, you people who are rich, if you can boast in your humiliation, if you can take what ultimately doesn't belong to you but belongs to God, if you could take that to bless others and become a servant of all, you'll pass the test. And so whether rich or poor, Our eyes need to be set not on earthly things, but upon the prize that God has for us. The crown of life. That's what we need to be looking at, this crown of life. Now, boys and girls, when you think of a crown, you may think of a king or a queen who has a golden crown on their head with all sorts of jewels and diamonds. That's not the type of crown Paul's talking about here. The Greek word is Stephanus. And so his, uh, James, or sorry, James is talking about here. His original audience would think not of a royal, uh, a, a royal crown, but the crown that you would get if you won a race. Like in the Olympics, in the ancient Olympics, the winner would receive a, 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 a wreath just put around their ears, that, and, but showing that they are the victor in the sporting event. And so this test is like a race that we need to run with endurance, setting our eyes upon Christ Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He calls it a crown of life because that is the prize. Life itself. And not just earthly life, but heavenly life, eternal life. That is what we need to look forward to because that is lasting Whereas we all fade and die like the flower that grows. 
ultimately the life that God gives to us will endure forever. Now, lest we think that when he talks about passing the test, remaining steadfast under trial, lest we think that somehow we may earn this crown or that it's up to us to get it, ultimately, we need to remember that this crown is already promised to us. And so we see that this gift of eternal life is a gift of grace and not of works. And so ultimately, that's what I think our Lord Jesus Christ gets at in Mark chapter 10, when his audience were exceedingly astonished after hearing him say that it's difficult. It's, in fact, impossible for the rich to be saved. They, they then reply by saying, well, then who can be saved? Because they assumed the rich were in God's favor. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. That's the good news of the gospel. Is that we don't have to earn our way to heaven. We don't have to purchase admittance into the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible. But if we flee to Christ, if we humble ourselves before God, he will exalt us. And even in this life, when we experience humiliation, if we are of a low status in this life, we know that we have one foot in heaven. We're seated together with Christ, the the Lord of glory. But also, we are united to the suffering servant. And he calls us to humble ourselves and take up the cross and follow after him. May God grant to us grace so that we may not be double-minded. May he grant to us an, an eternal perspective so that we may number our days and gain that heart of wisdom. And may, if, and may when we boast, may we boast in the Lord. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you, although you uh, are and continue to be the eternal Son of God, counting uh, equality would not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. You nevertheless humbled yourself and came in the form of a servant, living a life of suffering and obedience on our behalf, even to the point of death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted you and given you a name which is above all names so that every knee may bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. And we thank you that we are united to you by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we are given new and true identities in you. On the one hand, we experience even your exaltation now, even while we may live lives of humility. Grant to us grace, O Lord, so that we may turn our eyes towards heaven and that crown of life that you have promised to all who love you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.